0: Good morning everyone, I am Pastor Brendan, I'm delighted to be bringing the word to you this morning. Our Bible reading in our series in Genesis is from Job chapter 1, I'll explain, but Job chapter 1 verses 13 through 22, Race me there, it's kind of in the middle. Job chapter 1, verses ooh, I said 13 to 22. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the elder brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put your servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came up and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put your servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the eldest brother's house. When suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house, it collapsed on them and they are dead and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head and then he fell on the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you have to teach to us through it. We pray you open our hearts to what you have to say and open up your word to our hearts. And we pray that in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we are continuing in our series in Genesis this week, and we're continuing that by stepping out of Genesis into Job. And why into Job? Well, there's a few reasons, but uh, it fits to glance at Job right now most properly because we've witnessed these events in Genesis come one at a time and kind of the further back you go in biblical history uh, the more they feature a world that we can barely grasp from this one uh, we begin with this uh, perfect sinless world in a garden occupied by two perfect people and the lord work, walking directly with them and that's such a sublime image it's difficult for us to imagine because our world is not perfect and it's ugly and it's hard and it's stuffed to the gills with flawed people who need a savior And after creation, and creation itself being this cosmically unfathomable act we can barely picture, Adam and Eve's creation then comes, and those are the perfect humans we can barely imagine, and then we get the fall of man. All right, that's people screwing up and doing what's very much against their best interest because of a stupid impulse. Now they're starting to sound more like the people we understand. Genesis 3 moves into Genesis 4. Cain murders his brother Abel in a calculated, calculated act of evil Jealousy, and in fact, the whole world becomes so full of this kind of black-hearted corruption that God scours it clean with a flood. This is much more like the mankind that we know and love. The but the ancient nature of the setting um, and the colossal scale of these world-destroying miracles gives the whole sequence kind of a mythical feeling. That's hard for us to. Uh, to appraise as as if it's like the world that we occupy. And then the Tower of Babel comes, and all the people in the world are gathered into one place. They're defying God's ancient command to fill out and possess the earth. God scatters their languages. Suddenly, they are different tribes who only understand each other a little bit, and they can barely work together, and they scatter, divided ever more by tribal lines. Now, we arrive at the point where the world kind of has been for all of recorded history after Babel a world full of sinful men and women who live in defiance and often ignorance of God, broken up into hostile tribes who turn on each other in spite of their common ancestry and common goals. That's more or less the condition of mankind ever since the Tower of Babel. And since the story of Job, by best estimations, happens around the same time that Abraham is wandering out of the land of Ur, it seems that this book, with its, its tale of the terrible suffering, of a man and that man grappling with the nature of that suffering is the first word of wisdom the bible has to offer on the kind of world that the fall has made and since it is a wisdom book it's part of the wisdom literature of the bible uh, up there with ecclesiastes and, and proverbs in that same sort of section we should ask what wisdom does it have for us people who live in the same world full of pain and tragedy as job did Now, whether or not there was actually a man called Job to whom this happened, or if Job is a kind of a parable character, is not necessarily clear. Ask me after the service if you want a really complicated answer. But the book of James in the New Testament and Ezekiel in the Old refer to Job as an example with the same authority as other biblical characters like Noah. And so scripture compels us to look at Job's story seriously. So we should begin with a summary of the story of Job for those who have not recently gone through it, or maybe don't know it at all. The main character is Job. He's a wealthy man of great personal virtue. What do we know about Job? We know that he has a lot of sons and daughters. We know that he has a great deal of material wealth in the form of livestock. Um, He's not a Hebrew for a start. That's because the Hebrews are Abraham's family over in the land of Ur. They haven't really become the Israelites or the Jews or anything like that yet. Job lives, the book says, in the land of Uz which some scholars suggest might have been in southern Canaan. We don't know. A man named Uz is listed in Genesis as the great-grandson of Noah. So it stands to reason that this is a descendant of Uz, once in this land where uh, these descendants of Noah were scattered after the tower. But Job has such personal virtues, he's so uh, personally admirable in this scene, that God... Himself commends his goodness in what appears to be a wager with the devil that happens in the following scene. And that happens in verses 6 to 12 in chapter 1. It says, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and his herds spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has. And he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, then everything he has is in your power But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now this divine wager sets up the stage pretty clearly. Job is coming up on a great deal of personal tragedy and terrible calamity that is absolutely not his fault. He's a good man by God's own admission, and he's about to suffer terribly, not because he deserves it, but because in some sense, because he doesn't deserve it. Satan's challenge to God actually conjures up pictures of Genesis. It says, look, God says, look, he fears God and he shuns evil. And here, as elsewhere, fear being used, this kind of odd submission to power and not shivering, confused terror. And Satan says, of course he fears you because you're bribing him. and He doesn't want to lose the goods. The devil says that God has put a hedge around him, which is an interesting Accusation. He's saying life's so good for Job, it's as if God has built a little garden of Eden just around him, hedged off from the world like mankind once was. He's not out there suffering and toiling with the rest of mankind. God calls Satan's bluff, and we get the passage that was read a moment ago, a passage that is so legendary, um, it's worth reading again, it's so densely tragic that it comes off as kind of absurdly funny. It says, one day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them, and they put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and says, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And at this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. He fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God in wrongdoing. So in literally the same breath, Job loses his entire fortune and all his children. Everything that is important to him in the world, except for his health and his wife, go up in smoke. And his response is this incredibly humble sentiment that God owes him nothing, therefore he cannot rage against God for taking these things from him. The next scene redoubles the first. Satan returns to the court of God, the Lord of hosts now understandably smug, having won the wager. Job has suffered, but he has not cursed God's name. In fact, he has praised it. Job's faithfulness is proven not to be a transaction, but true loyalty, Satan's response is to go double or nothing. He says, Job's still behaving because he has his health. You take that away, he will surely sulk. And God indulges the enemy in his challenge one more time. Job is struck with sickness. It says he has painful sores from head to toe. And then his wife turns on him in the following uh, following verses. In chapter 2, verse 9, his wife says to him, Are you maintaining your integrity still? Curse God and die. He replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Now, this is the last we see of that heavenly scene. The rest of the story takes place entirely by Job's side in the ruins of his life. His three friends, they come to him to mourn with him. And then after seven days of silence, Job finally cracks and he starts to lament the tragedy of his life. He says, Why was I not hidden away in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. And what follows then is the best efforts of his friends to console the stricken Job and to try and get his life back on track. These men offer the best advice they can think to give. In their estimation, the wrath of God falls only on those who have incurred it and deserve it, Job must have done something in secret because he seems so righteous on the outside to provoke the fire of heaven. And what he needs to do is confess. They say, consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they perish. At the blast of his anger they are no more. The lions may roar and growl, yet the teeth of the great lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. One of the three friends will give a speech along those lines in sequence and Job's response is consistently not to repent of something he doesn't think he's done. He's despairing. He wishes that God would put him out of his misery but he never curses God's name as if God owed him something and failed to deliver. And he consistently maintains... That he has made no offense to the Almighty and therefore does not need to repent of such an offense. His friends come back at him. They say, No, Job, you're compounding your sin now by denying it. Job continues to lament but doesn't back down. He says, And they, they keep telling him, Maybe you've sinned, you didn't realize you sinned it. Maybe it was a very small thing you've forgotten. You know how sensitive God is about this kind of thing. Job tells them, no, trust me, I was very careful to not live a wicked life because I was afraid of God's punishment, but apparently I got stung anyway. I would really like to know what the point of all this is, but I haven't sinned. And some 30 chapters pass like this, back and forth between Job and his friends until they are both completely exasperated with each other. And I'm skimming over that now, but the poetry of those chapters is extraordinarily beautiful and worth reading slowly more than once in your own time. Then a new voice joins the party, a guy named Elihu. He's a younger man who is angry with Job for feeling sorry for himself and twice as angry at his friends for failing to completely set him straight. Elihu slides in and offers what he thinks is wisdom. in In essence, he tells Job, if God punishes people for no reason, there's no point complaining about it. The kind of God who doesn't care about good and evil certainly is not going to care about you moaning. About that. God doesn't talk to people. He doesn't communicate like that. God speaks through suffering. That's how He teaches. This is what Elihu says. Chapter 36, verses 7 to 15. He does not take His eyes off the righteous. He enthrones them with kings and exalts them forever. But if people are bound in chains, held fast by cords of affliction, He tells them what they have done, that they have sinned arrogantly. He makes them listen to correction and commands them to repent of their evil. If they obey and serve him, they will spend the rest of their days in prosperity and their years in contentment. But if they do not listen, they will perish by the sword and die without knowledge. The godless in heart harbor resentment. Even when he fetters them, they do not cry for help. They die in their youth among male prostitutes of the shrines. But those who suffer, he delivers in their suffering. He speaks to them in their affliction. Elihu says, God doesn't owe you an answer. You shouldn't expect an answer. You should take the fact that your life stinks as a sign that God is not happy with how you're living it. Do better or die. And then God speaks. He speaks directly in answer uh, to Job's question about what's happening, but he doesn't quite answer it directly. Indirectly, he silences Elihu as moments before proclaimed that God was not one to speak directly to mortal men. Every verse from chapters 38 to 41 is quotable in its own right. God illuminates his own majesty in contrast to the tiny objections that Job is making, who asks these questions that are beyond his capacity to receive an answer. God responds to Job's questioning by putting Job back in the correct posture. He began in a humble servant before a mighty God. A sampling of that from the beginning... Of chapter 38 goes like this then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm he said who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge brace yourself like a man I will question you and you shall answer me where were you when I laid the earth's foundation tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions surely you know who stretched a measuring line across it on what footings were on what were its footings set who laid its cornerstone While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, you may come this far and no farther. Here is where your proud waves shall halt. And so Job humbles himself. He repents not of a sin... But of asking a question that he has no right to expect an answer to, nor that he could understand. The Lord speaks then to Job's friends and warns them that they have not spoken rightly of him as his servant Job has. And that they are told to assist Job so that Job can offer a sacrifice on their behalf and a prayer for them. And that this prayer from the righteous Job, God would accept And in this epilogue, God sees fit to bless Job with twice the livestock and wealth and comfort that he began with and ten children through which his family might continue after being so painfully shortened. He lives 140 years. He eventually dies a content and fulfilled great-great-grandfather of goodness knows how many kids. So goes the story of Job. And the key question of the story of Job is always, and has always been, the problem of evil. Why do bad things happen to good people? This is a question that we still struggle with today. People have been struggling with it for all of recorded human history. And very interestingly, they've been struggling with it in additional recorded stories. Now much like many ancient cultures have their own flood stories that give us reason to believe that Ah, the Noah story truly did affect the whole world. The oldest fragments of the book of Job that we have They don't go back earlier than 700 B.C., but as early as uh, 1600 B.C., about 200 years before Moses would be born, the early Babylonians had recorded the poem of the righteous sufferer. This is a story about a man called Tabu Utul Bel, age 52, an official in the Babylonian city of Nippur. In the story, Tabu cries out to his gods about the many sicknesses and sufferings that have rained down upon him. The god that hears Tabu is Marduk, one of the Babylonian gods, and Marduk sends a sorcerer to cure Tabu from the affliction caused by presumably some other god. This story's answer then to the problem of evil is something like this. There is evil in the world because some of the gods are cruel, but if you are faithful then the gods who are not cruel will be faithful to you in time. Now, At a similar time as that, a story comes out of ancient Samaria called A Dialogue Between a Man and His God, in which, you guessed it, a man is struck with many sufferings and sicknesses and cries out in frustration to his particular nameless God for relief. And in this story, the man's God eventually decides to flippantly heal him under the proviso that he must never forget his God. This take offers an answer like this. There is evil in the world because the gods will it. But if you sufficiently curry their favor, then they will relent. If you are nice enough to them, they will let you off the hook. Now, this is a contemporary story with an, um, an old old tablets of an ancient Sumerian prayer called the Penitential Prayer to Every God, and that's exactly what it sounds like. They had this prayer; they'd recorded on a tablet for people to pray for people who are suffering but don't know which god they have offended. So they desperately try to please them all. It's kind of a scattergun upwards and saying, I'm not not sure which of you I upset, but please stop. This answer is that there is evil in the world because you have offended the gods, and you may not know which one or how you did it, so cover your bases. And long before even these, perhaps around 2000 BC, about 200 years before Abraham was born, comes the ancient tale out of Ur, the city in which the patriarch will later be called from. And in this story, a man suffers. He cries out to his father's God, and that God is so impressed with his prayer that he heals him on the spot. And that lesson would be that there is evil in this world, but the gods reward those who impress them with prayer. Pray hard enough and all will be well. So this story of the suffering man who cries out for answers from heaven because he doesn't know why he is suffering is not unique in that respect. And we've seen these these pitiful parallels in which the only answers discovered are to cringe cluelessly before a thousand faceless gods or to offer the offending gods something they must want in trade for their favor, praise or prayer perhaps. We get this image of the ancient Near East in which the entire posture of people before their gods is one of hopeless confusion. And then comes the Hebrew version of this story. Now whether it was a parable composed by a wise king or a vision given to be written down by some unnamed prophet of true events, the differences in the stories are stark and amazing. For a start in Job's story, the first thing we see is the reason that Job is going to suffer. He is suffering because God decided to indulge Satan in his challenge about the nature of Job's faith. Satan said it was just loyalty bought and paid for with heavenly kindness. God says that Job merely understands his place before a holy God. A truth confirmed by the fact that Job never curses God's name and that God never justifies himself to Job even in the last chapters of the story. Job never receives an answer to his question, why did this happen to me? And when God restores his fortune, it's not because Job earned it. It's because it pleases the Lord to do so, and no reason beyond that. And while in all these ancient tales, the afflicted men come wailing before their unimpressive gods, they receive answers that we would find deeply unsatisfying. In Job's story, however... It's his foolish friends who come up with these ideas that Job must have done something to cause this suffering and needs, he needs to repent and it might be so small and obscure he might not remember it or that man is so inherently a worm before God that he should grovel for divine favor. Job's story puts these answers in these ancient stories into the mouths of idiots. Idiots whom God then personally rebukes. And there are clues here that this tale is meant to show the wise men of the Gentile world about the nature of the Hebrew God, the one who really made the world and who is really in charge. In some places, the book calls the Lord Yahweh, the name that uh, Moses was given, or that Abraham indeed was given. Um, But most often, the term Elohim, a more general term for the supreme God and one recognized by all the people in that region, is used much like we use the English word God when sharing the gospel. One of the ancient enduring myths of that time was this idea that the sky and thunder was the province of the gods. That's where men prayed. And the mysterious dark seas were the realm of beasts and monsters against whom the gods fought. But the book of Job portrays God as supreme over all these things speaking out of the storm, telling the lightning where to go, but also present at the dawn of time when the sea was formed, when he, the one true God, told the tides, this far you go and no further. This is what the book of Job offered to the ancient world, a fresh take on a timeless question, that man might not know God's intention with the suffering that he permits, but he can have faith that God is indeed in control. That he is faithful to those who are faithful to him and gracious with those who sin against him. And this is true today. The ancient world did not exhaust all of the world's supply of suffering. We have plenty left over for today. And like Job, we might look up at the sky and wonder why things happen the way they do. We live in a fractured post fall world full of people who mean to do us harm and events that seem random to everyone except those they land on directly. But like Job, we have a God who is not silent, who speaks to us in his word. And like Job, we might never understand why God allowed us to go through a particular trial. But unlike Job, we have a greater assurance available to us still. We know that Christ died on our behalf, a true and full sacrifice to pay for our sins so that we might know the promise of eternal life where there is no suffering where there is no more pain, where things are like they were before sin broke the world. In this world, we know only as much about our individual sufferings as Job knew about his. We have a promise of a world to come where there will be final justice for those who love the Lord. And we know one more thing about which the author of the book of Job might not have known. When Job, a man declared righteous before God, endures his suffering despite his innocence, he is tasked by God then to make an acceptable sacrifice, not for himself, but for his friends who are sinners. That might sound like someone you know. And sometimes the challenges of this word, the sufferings and all, and the challenges of this world, its sufferings and all for us, might make Little sense to us. But the message of the gospel casts a cross-shaped shadow back onto these old scriptures and throws bright illumination into the future. We suffer and we live for the sake of our Lord who suffered and died. So that one day we might live with him free of suffering in the presence of our God. So let's pray together. Father God, you tell the lightning where to go. You draw up the borders of the land and the sea. You have all the power, and we are so small. What are we that you are mindful of us, Lord? But you are mindful of us. You love us, and we thank you for that wonderful kindness and goodness. Help us to pursue your word and your way faithfully. Encourage us when we are confronted by suffering. And empower us by your spirit to live even in painful times, especially in painful times. In a way that points the world towards the unfailing glory of your son. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.